Amen. Thank you, choir and musicians. This Andrew Duncan lookalike over here on piano is Andrew Duncan, Aaron's brother, who beautifully is filling in for Lauren today. And he's going to help conduct the choir this afternoon as they get ready for our, our big Christmas music uh, next week. I pray that you will uh, think about who you might invite next week, uh, a friend or a neighbor or a coworker. It's a really great entryway. They don't have to hear me preach Isaiah or anything. All they have to do is uh, enjoy the beautiful uh, orchestra and, and decorations, and, and hopefully they'll hear the gospel message. Actually, I know they'll hear the gospel message because I've heard the CD as my wife has been practicing in the car, uh, all these songs, and she was trying to get me to sing the, the, the guy's part, and I said, I'm driving. I can't uh, look at the music right now, but uh, it was fun. Anyway, uh, we safely made it to Thanksgiving. So I was talking with uh, one of our members here, and she confessed that uh, she might have indulged in the sin of gluttony over uh, this past week, and I confessed that I had as well. So um, on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're all absolved, okay? Uh, let's, let's go forth and sin no more as we uh, leave this place today. I was talking to another lady here, and we were joking about maybe uh, attendance might pick up now that Isaiah's over, and uh, we're going to be out of uh, Isaiah. But uh, for those of you who thought we were done with Old Testament prophecy, let me say what Lee Corso says on College Game Day. Not so fast, my friend. <laughs> we're going to be in Jeremiah today, which is one prophet uh, removed from Isaiah, one prophet ahead of Isaiah. Just Three short verses, and, and these verses are the lectionary text. I'm going to be preaching uh, during Advent from the lectionary text. And if you don't know what lectionary is, some of you I know grew up in Episcopal churches or Lutheran or Anglican churches or even Catholic where they, they use a, a lectionary. And the revised common lectionary is one that a lot of liturgical Protestant churches Use. And what the cool thing about it is that uh, we're com connected and combined with churches around the world and with millions of Christians who are reading this exact same text today, which I think is pretty cool because uh, we as Baptists are not some separate religion, right? We're, we're Christians who profess that the triune God and the death and resurrection of his only son, Jesus Christ, as sufficient for our uh, salvation. And so we connect with the church around the world through this Advent season. And I think it's a really important season. I think that far too often we tend to just skip over from Thanksgiving to Christmas and increasingly uh, now just straight from Halloween to Christmas. It seems like all the marketing just ramps up and then the decorations. And, and that's okay if you're a before Thanksgiving decorator. I'm not slamming you. But I do want us to spend some time in the waiting I don't know about you, but I'm not a very patient person. I don't like to wait anywhere, ever, in any context. <laughs> My sinful nature is, is making me an impatient person, and God's working on me, thank God. And the fruit of the Spirit is patience, we know. But Advent is such an important season because it, it's about this longing. It's about anticipation of God doing a great Work And that is an appropriate emotion for us to engage in throughout this time of Advent. In order to really appreciate the birth of the Savior, we need to understand the fuller story. You know, before Jesus was born, you know, God's people had, hadn't heard from the Lord in over 400 years. There was just silence. There were no more prophets coming. 
And, and God's people had, had, yes, they'd returned from Babylon to the promised land, but that land was never theirs. It was occupied by the, the Persians and then the Greeks, and, and by the time of Jesus, the Romans. And the remnant that had returned to rebuild Jerusalem faced constant adversity and, and obstacles, and they never, ever regained their political independence until 1948, we know, when Israel was established as a country again. And, and Abraham's offspring, you know, the chosen people, God's beloved family, found themselves as a powerless, small, subjugated, ethnic minority, ethnic tribe, with, with just some ancient texts and some ancient rituals to connect them to their ancient roots as the promised people. And, and I've said it before, I'm prone towards cynicism. I can get bitter and, and jaded pretty quickly when I get lost in my own thoughts and when I'm overwhelmed by the immediate circumstances around me. And I'm sure that if I was around during this time in Jewish history, I would be the guy that says, are you kidding me? Where, where is God in all of this? How, how are we the promised people? How long are we gonna have to wait for him to show up and do what he's supposed to do, to do what he's promised to do? Where's that, that hero that we read about in Isaiah who, who has promised to come and rescue us and to save us and, and to make us into a great nation again. What's taking so long? So my hope for today and throughout this season is that we're gonna be able to first come to understand a little bit more about just how amazing it is that God showed up, that he came to our world. All the promises all the prophecies of the Old Testament became fulfilled and validated the moment God arrived here in the flesh. And second, as we travel this, this journey of Advent together, I pray that we're gonna be filled with some of that same sense of longing and, and anticipation. There was a beautiful song that the choir just sang, Come Messiah. That's a preview, I can tell you. That's the first song in the music that you're gonna hear next week. There's a little teaser, thank you choir for that, uh, of longing. And two of my favorite Advent songs, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Charles Wesley, wrote those beautiful words of longing, of the, the joy and, and the, the consolation and strength of Israel that is to come. And then, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We don't sing enough songs in minor keys, do we? I, I love that minor key, Justin. I know you dig that. <laughs> it's about being broken over sin and, and acknowledging that not everything's okay, that we need a Savior. So I pray that we get that sense of, of hopefulness, that God's people bear throughout this season before Christ came the first time and before he comes again. Yes, God arrived to rescue us, but not like we anticipated, not like we expected, maybe not like we wanted. Yes, he inaugurated a whole new age, but it's not the end of the story yet. And as Jesus' disciples grew in their understanding of what was going on and what was really happening with Jesus, they began to think, this is it. This is it. God's finally sent the rescuer. And, and he's going to be the one to kick the Romans out. 
and to set up a, a beautiful temple uh, in Israel. And, and Israel's gonna be the most important and powerful kingdom once again in the world. And God's people are gonna rule the world. That's not what Advent is about. That's not what happened. They didn't understand that's not how the gospel works. They didn't understand that this whole new covenant gospel thing was gonna transform the world in a way they could never have imagined. Jesus defeated sin and death forever through his own sacrificial atoning death and his miraculous, glorious resurrection. But we still struggle with both of them, don't we? What the disciples didn't understand is that there's gonna be a second advent. I hope you've read your devotion for today and, and in this coming week in the Gospel of Advent, but it talks about the second advent. And what's gonna happen on that day, we, we saw a preview in Isaiah of what's gonna happen at the end of the story, how God will close this chapter of history and turn the page on a whole new chapter, the final chapter of the story of everything ever, the new heavens and the new earth. And he will wipe away every tear and death itself will die. So let's do something that we haven't done uh, in a while here today. If you're able to, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word with all that background in your minds as we read our text for today. It's only these three short verses. Let's hear the word of the Lord now from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 14 to 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You still remember how to do that. Good. Y'all have a seat. Well done. When I was younger, uh, my mom would, would eventually get fed up with me pushing back on everything. <laughs> and she would just get exasperated. And she would throw her hands up and say, you know, you would argue with a fence post. I don't know if that's a Texas thing. My parents are from Texas, but uh, she would just, that would be the end of the conversation because she knew there was no sense in trying to convince me of something or tell me something because I was just going to argue with her on it. And now she thinks it's hilarious that our oldest son, Jude, who's 12 and he's, you know, firstborn and he's kind of you know, getting smarter, and now he pushes back against everything that we say, and, and my mom just laughs and, you know, says, good luck with that. <laughs> I don't know where he gets it from. It must be his mom. Uh, but what we all have inside of us is this inherent need, some of us apparently more than others, but we have this need to, to be right, to, to be justified, to, to, to be told that we're correct. There's a prideful sinful motive that just wants to say, ha, in your face, boom, I told you so. But there's also another sense in which we want to be right, one that may be God-given. We want to know that, that we get it, that we're not just living a lie, 
that we're not just walking along in error. We wanna live in the truth. We wanna live authentically. That's a big thing with millennials and, and Gen Z, living the truth. We wanna know that what we believe in our heart of hearts foundationally is best, is the path that leads to flourishing. We wanna know that, that what we proclaim to be true is actually good and life-giving. And most of all, deep down, we all want to be right in the sense of being in a good place emotionally, mentally, physically, and most of all, spiritually. That, that longing, the, the Psalms say that God has set eternity in our hearts. We sometimes, though, resemble a ship that has begun to, to list sideways and therefore has gone off course and you know, the sailors have a term for course correction. They say you have to right the ship, to, to raise the ship back to vertical so that it can go on the course that it's supposed to go on and get to where it's supposed to go. In our passage for today, we're gonna see about riding the ship. We're, we're gonna see that the key word has to do with being right and being made right. It's a, a Bible word that we use a lot, righteousness, that may just kind of go over our heads or in one ear and out the other, but I really want us to focus on what that word means today. The God of, of Israel is promising through the prophet Jeremiah to do something amazing, to, to make his people right and to make those who would come after them through Jesus right. Let's get a little context first, though. Any text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want to say. Jeremiah was a prophet in Judah who actually lived during the, the Babylonian captivity. But before that, he was called during the reign of, of Josiah, who you might know was a good king. He was only eight years old when he became king, but he enacted all these reforms and got rid of the idols and called his people to repentance like Brad called us to in his prayer today. Uh, from Isaiah chapter 30, we know that, that Josiah was a good king and that he called for getting back to God's ways and to God's word, and, and Jeremiah was called during that good time, but then it didn't work out. We, we only know that Jeremiah had two people who ever responded positively to his message. He struggled. They call him the weeping prophet because he, he warned Jerusalem what would happen to that beloved city if they did not turn back to God, and of course they didn't, and the Babylonians came in and, and ruined everything. I, Jeremiah would, would spend his whole career pleading with the citizens of Jerusalem to, to either turn to the Lord or face the consequences. And of course, the, the Babylonians were an instrument of God, a course correction, uh, riding the ship in, in one way for his people as, as they came in and, and captured all the people and hauled them off to exile as slaves in, in Babylon that the Lord used them to teach his children an invaluable lesson, that they were never going to find the peace and the prosperity and the provision and the power which they so desperately wanted anywhere else outside of God's will for them. They forgot that their flourishing was 100% tied to their faithfulness to the Lord. So Jerusalem was sacked a few times by the Babylonians, but ultimately 586 B.C. is the year that Jerusalem was destroyed. 
The temple was burned to the ground. The holy of holies was defiled with pig's blood. But, but even then, even then, Jeremiah contains this beautiful section in chapter 30 to 33 uh, that's hopeful. That's a, a very hopeful section. God doesn't turn his back on his people ever. There's always a chance. There's always hope. And, and their punishment would only last a few decades, ultimately. God would restore them. He would return them back into the, the, the promised land. Jeremiah's a tough book. If you're reading through the Bible and you're in Jeremiah, I'm sorry, but, but wait for chapter 30 to 33 because this is beautiful promises. Here, Jeremiah promises that, that God's people would be restored. He talks about when God's time of, of judgment and punishment and discipline will be over. And one of the most beautiful promises in all of Jeremiah that sets up our text for today is found two chapters earlier in chapter 31, verses uh, 31 to 34. After this unbelievable suffering and, and tragedy that God's people had, had been through, God tells them this beautiful promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, my covenant, God's unilateral, it's not a two-way kind of deal, it's God initiating this covenant. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How is it that a holy God, we just sang about, he remains undefeated, only a holy God. Is he saying here he's going to let sin slide? Is he saying here it's no big deal? No, God would not be just. He would not be perfect in his holiness if he did that. There must be some solution. There must be some way for God to both remain holy and perfect in his justice and also to forgive and to remember former sins no more. How is that possible? Through a new covenant. You know, sometimes Morgan and I, I, this may be bad parenting, don't judge us too harshly. Uh, well, sometimes we make deals with our kids, right? It's just all you do to survive, right? Uh, long road trips like going to Michigan for a wedding. Uh, we, we told them, look, here's the deal. Um, you can have all these snacks. Morgan packed, you know, a bag this big with snacks. You can have all these snacks. You can watch all the movies you want to. Thank God for DVD players and our minivans uh, these days. <laughs> Thank God for minivans. I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> and, and, and we said, here's the deal. You can have Morgan rented like 12 movies at the library and said, you can watch all these movies and have all the snacks, but you got to keep it together. <laughs> Just keep it together. Keep your hands to yourselves. Don't whine. Don't complain. Just, just keep it together and you can have all these movies, right? 
we, we make this covenant. It's a contract of sorts. It's an arrangement that hopefully ensures that we have a safe and quiet and peaceful ride all the way to North Michigan or to uh, the beach. We're going over New Year's to the beach. I'm not talking the Redneck Riviera. We're going to South Florida. So throughout history, God makes deals with his children to ensure that peace and flourishing and shalom is the, the beautiful Hebrew word, happens. And, and these covenants are initiated by God. And unlike Morgan and me, it's not just survival mode. It's not about just getting his kids to behave. These covenants are effectively ab about filling, fulfilling God's purposes and God's plan. He, he makes contracts with us in order to carry out his good purposes in all creation. After sin, you know, had made a mess of, of what was formerly a very good creation, God calls one guy, Abram of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to go to the land that he's going to show him to leave his father's household. And, and from him would come a, a family a special family, and through that family, God would bless all the world. Every family was gonna be blessed through this family that God would create through this one guy. And remember what he told Abraham in his covenant? He told him that he was gonna make a great nation out of him, that he was gonna bless that nation, and that whoever blessed that nation would be blessed, and whoever cursed it would be cursed. And I don't think that's talking about the political nation of Israel. I think it's talking about the people of God. It's the people of God carrying out God's mission, not just security in Israel, but security for the world through the gospel and God's people. Who are the people of God on this side of the cross now? It's you and me. Galatians 3 is clear. We are Abraham's offspring if we are in Christ. So again, we're getting kind of big picture level here, but, but think about the covenants that God made. Abraham believed this covenant and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. Fast forward later, a great prophet named Moses would have the greatest deliverance act ever and, and through 10 plagues and through this miraculous uh, open parting of the sea, he would lead God's people, maybe two million uh, Israelites is what some scholars think, uh, out of bondage in Egypt and into uh, really the wilderness up to a mountain called Mount Sinai where God shows up with fire and smoke and gives them these, these rules, these, these laws, the, the 10 words, the 10 commandments. He gives them a lot of other uh, covenantal promises. And God reiterated his covenant with Moses in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. When he says you, this is why we need a southern version of the Bible. He's saying y'all, right? It's not just saying to Moses. He's saying you, plural. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God's plan, again, he's reiterating his covenant promises with these people. And then many, many years later, God again clarifies his covenant with King David. He makes a covenant with King David. David had just, uh, in 2 Samuel, he had secured uh, Jerusalem's borders. He had expanded Jerusalem's borders. 
He had secured Israel's peace and prosperity. He had defeated the Philistines. It was a good time in Jerusalem. He built for himself this big palace out of cedar. And he said, ah, it's not good that I'm in this palace and God's still in a tent in the tabernacle. I'm going to build a huge cathedral, a temple for God to dwell in. And God shows up through the, the prophet Nathan and says to him, really, you think I need a house? I, I, I dwell in the heavens. <laughs> Everything is mine. The whole earth is mine, Exodus 19 said. I don't need a house. I'm good. In fact, I'm going to build you a house, but, but not like the one you're thinking. Look at 2 Samuel 11 through 16. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Offspring is singular, one person, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father. What? That's not talking about Solomon, is it? I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men. Wait a minute, Jesus never committed iniquity. Well, wait a minute, I remember reading in Isaiah 53 about the iniquity was laid on him, our iniquity, and by his stripes we are healed. He will be punished for the, son, for the sin of the sons. The stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from King Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God's gonna build a house for David, but a house like a lineage, not a, a, a structure, a house like the house of Montagu or house of Capulet or more recently the house of Gucci, whatever you think of as a lineage. God's gonna build a house that lasts forever. And this one son of God, this singular offspring, will reign forever. Remember back in Genesis 49 when Jacob is blessing his sons, the 12 sons that will become the 12 tribes, and he says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. And of course, David comes from Judah, and of course, Jesus comes from the line of David. The, this is messianic language. That's the key here. The covenant of God contains a promise of an anointed one who would come to reign forever. But the problem with the Old Testament covenants is that Israel doesn't hold up their end of the deal. They're more like my kids who just can't help themselves but to hit each other and kick each other in the car and pick on each other instead of just quietly watching the movies and eating the snacks. <laughs> so Jeremiah promises a mysterious new covenant a covenant unlike all the old ones because God's people will actually follow this one. Instead of trying and failing to follow a bunch of rules, God says, I'm gonna transform their hearts. This work's gonna come from the inside, not an external righteousness, but the law of God's gonna be imprinted on a new heart, a heart of flesh, not of stone, as Ezekiel says. And somehow the Messiah is going to bring about this new covenant. He's going to usher it in. So in our text for today, we see in verse 15 the promise of a Messiah, a righteous branch, an offshoot. And branch in my Bible has a capital B. 
It's the Messiah. And when he comes, God's covenant promises will be fulfilled. He will bring about justice and righteousness in an amazing way. That means he's going to make things right. He's going to make people right. Verse 16 says that in those days, God's children will be rescued and made to dwell securely forever. And they're going to get a new name, a new identity. Yahweh is our righteousness. Not my good deeds are my righteousness, my good works, my character is my righteousness. No, God himself is our righteousness. We claim him, not ourselves. So what does this mean for us and what does this have to do with Advent? Let me just close with three quick points on your outline if you were following along today. Three takeaways for us to ponder from this text that are Advent promises. First, Advent proves that God is faithful. That's the first point on your outline. Look at verse 14 again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Advent fulfills the promises of God. I, I love uh, how 2 Corinthians 1.20 says it, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That's why we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen is a great word, which means may it be so, or, or we agree with you. We're saying to God, amen, yes, God, we see your plan is good because of Jesus. Because of what he's done, we say, yes, God. It's a life that's lived by faith, trusting that God is faithful and that all the promises that aren't yet fulfilled, like the promise that he will wipe away every tear, will come true because Jesus has come. Don't choose cynicism. Don't choose unbelief. Let's lean into this idea that Christ is our guarantee. It's a down payment of what we're going to receive one day. New life, just as he has new life. Point number two, Advent pro proves that the gospel transforms. It does something miraculous inside of us. Look at verse 15 again. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous, capital B branch, to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and make things right in the land. How is that possible? that he can both be just and bring about rightness. That means we all should die, right? How does a holy God in the splendor of his glory welcome sinners such as you and me into his presence? How does a God like that adopt me and make me an heir of the promises that he's given us? How could he love us? You may say, I don't know, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I haven't killed anybody, I don't deal drugs, I'm... I, you know, pay my taxes sometimes. I'm not a criminal. I'm not an addict. I'm here in church, aren't I? But the Bible makes it clear that none of us are right on our own. Romans 3.23, VBS verse, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But at Advent, God's plan to, to make us right, to reckon sinners right, comes to, to fruition. God doesn't let sin slide. He judges it on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. God's an incredibly loving and gracious God, but he's also a just God. So he forges a way to remain just and to also be gracious 
and show us overwhelming love and mercy. Psalm 85.10 says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. I love that verse. God's overwhelming love and his faithfulness to judge sin meet in the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus makes us right while at the same time keeping God's character holy. Third and finally, Advent proves that God is our rightness, righteousness. Rightness just kind of makes it sound different. We're powerless to get right on our own, no matter how kind you may be, no matter how much money you've given to the church, no matter how many degrees that you've had, you can't get right, you can't be right on your own. You can't live right, you can't die right apart from God's grace. Look at verse 16 again. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely and this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Advent shows us how God came to do for us that which we could not do on our own, namely to be right. I love how 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it, for our sake he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let's go forward this Advent season trusting that God is faithful. He will never let us down. And then let's trust in the power of the gospel to transform us, to, to make us right with the Lord, to allow the perfect love and justice of God to change us from the inside out. And finally, let's, do, let's let God do what we can't do to make us right when we could never make us right in the first place. Let's live into that Advent hope this season with all of our hearts, rejecting the cynicism and leaning into hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, for the new covenant that was ushered in through our Messiah. God, we thank you that, that by sending Jesus, you prove all your promises are yes and amen. And we can say, yes, God, we agree with you. We trust you. We believe you. God, we, we want to be made right, and we know the only way to do that is through your grace. God, I pray if there's anyone here who's never been made right with you by accepting the free gift of salvation that comes by faith, by grace in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would convict them of that right now and bring them to salvation, that they would come through faith. God, I pray that for the rest of us who've already made that decision, that you would remind us that, that that salvation is not just some gift for us to enjoy, but it's to be used for your kingdom and carrying out your good purposes, that you transform us by the gospel in order that we may be your hands and feet in the world, faithfully living out your new covenant. May our lives line up with what we profess we believe. God, we thank you for this beautiful time of Advent. We, we do long, oh God, for you to return again. We don't even know what we're asking, but we say, come Lord Jesus. Come thou long expected Jesus. We ask you to, to come quickly and to put an end to viruses, to put an end to, uh, to suffering, put an end to sickness and death, put an end to poverty, put an end to injustice, put an end to strained family relationships that are so much on display during this time of year.
put an end to the grief that is so obvious and so felt during the holidays as well, God. We long to, to be restored to you and to those who have gone before us in faith by the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell securely and reign with you forever and ever. Until that day, oh God, may we live with profound hope and faith, walking by faith, not by sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.